statistics. For those of you, it's so good to meet some new folks today, some folks who've just moved here, some folks who are just visiting the area. I uh, met a, a family that um, uh, just moved from New Jersey uh, a few months ago in our faith group this morning, and uh, others. We're so glad to have you. There is a, a, a sermon guide in your bulletin. Uh, if you'd like to follow along and take notes, you can do that, and we encourage you to do that. And uh, we will be in, in Mark chapter 6. This is actually our 17th message as we're just walking through the gospel of Mark verse by verse. And we are looking at the life and, and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we are learning from him. We've entitled this Following Jesus. And that is what we have all been called to do. And so we are not picking and choosing just titles. We're just simply going through the text. And sometimes it brings us to difficult text. Uh, Sometimes it brings us to text about salvation and surrender, but it's all the inspired scriptures, and that's why we go through it the way that we do. And as we've been studying the life of Jesus, he has been ministering, chapter 6 and 5, he's been ministering in and around the Sea of Galilee, both teaching and doing miracles. And the response to his teaching and the response to his miracles has been a very widespread response. The Jewish leadership has decided that Jesus doesn't fit their idea of what they wanted in a Messiah. And so for the most part, they have shunned him. For the most part, they have rejected him. And so he has not uh, teaching as much as he once was in the synagogues. He's moved out into the villages. He's, he's teaching uh, many times by the Sea of Galilee where the crowds are coming to him. And some are coming to experience his healing power. Some are coming to be entertained by his miracles. And a few have followed him in genuine faith. And we know that because oftentimes after he's finished doing the miracles or he's finished teaching, there's only just a few that stick around. By and large, the masses leave. But we also need to remember that during this time of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, he is also teaching the apostles who he is going to give the great task that when he ascends back into heaven, the apostles are going to be given the great task to carry on the gospel. And so they're with him and they're learning from him. I've said it a thousand times and you have perhaps as well. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's just something special about going home, especially after you have left the house and perhaps you're gone to college or you've gotten married. There's something special. There's this sense of anticipation about going home and coming back. I can remember as a college student and getting to come home to home-cooked meals and food in the cabinets that you can get into and clean bathrooms, praise the Lord. There's just something about being able to come home that is special. It's a place where you are known and you are loved and you are accepted at face value. A place where you can kind of relax and take off your shoes. It's it's a place of a lot of memories from childhood. It's where you walk down the street, and especially in a town like Jamestown, and you see familiar people and you see friends, and you greet them after coming back to a place. But as we come to chapter 6, it really is a very sad commentary 
on the lives of those that grew up around Jesus in his hometown, the hometown of Nazareth. This is not the place of his birth, that was Bethlehem, but it is the place where he spent his childhood and early adulthood, perhaps even close to 30 years. Jesus has now left the Galilean region, and as we come to chapter 6, he's left Capernaum, where, which was really kind of his base where he was ministering, and he has traveled a day's journey now, 25 miles southwest to his hometown, back to Nazareth. This is his second time to go back to Nazareth. He had been there about a year earlier. And in both cases, he receives the same response from the people in his hometown. I grew up my whole life in Tennessee. I love Tennessee. Amen? I didn't grow up my whole life in Jamestown. Um, but for six years, the Lord called us to Alabama. We left Tennessee and we went to Alabama. And uh, if you know anything about college football, one of the worst things you can do is leave Tennessee and go to Alabama. And one of the things I, I disliked the most about living in Alabama, especially during the fall months, was on Saturdays especially, did not matter where you went, if it was a restaurant or Walmart or Target or church or anywhere, you would hear this song. I'm not going to play it. Sweet Home Alabama. And I hate that song. <laughs> As I was studying this, I thought about that. And, and I, I thought, well, this is no longer Sweet Home Nazareth for Jesus. If you're able to stand, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? And we'll read the first six verses. And he went out from thence, meaning he left Capernaum, the Galilean region, and he came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things, and what wisdom is this which is given unto him? I mean, this is the young carpenter boy from Nazareth that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him, or they were ashamed of him, really. Verse 4, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could do there, and he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few folks and healed them. Sounds like it was from the south, doesn't it, folks? Verse 6 says, and he marveled. This is the phrase I'd like for you to mark. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Father, as we come to your word today, we... Thank you, Lord, for the inspired scriptures, and we're thankful, Lord, that it is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction and righteousness. And Lord, as we come to this text today, it it brings us, especially where we live, to some very important reminders. And Lord, we see the power of belief, we see the power of unbelief. And I pray, God, that this morning you would deal with our hearts. And, Lord, if there is someone here who has not come to you in faith and repentance, 
turning from their sin and their good works to faith in Jesus alone for salvation. We pray that today would be that day. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to all of our hearts through your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps some of you, in contrast to what we just described while ago, you can, you can identify with going home perhaps for a holiday time or a time where your family is gathering and there's tension in the home. It's quiet. There's obvious things that are not being spoken of and there is, there is a, a tension everywhere you go. And really, you have this feeling you can't wait to leave by the time you get there. And that is, to, to say the least, kind of what Jesus and his disciples were feeling as he goes back into Nazareth. There is no parade for the hometown hero. Instead, there is this coldness in the room everywhere he goes. And I want you to look at that key statement once more in verse number 6 because it is a very, very rare response of, of Jesus. Think about Jesus and his earthly ministry and all that we have been going through and reviewing. Everywhere Jesus went, the Bible tells us that people were amazed at him, right? They were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his miracles. They, they could not believe and get over. Even here in our text, they're amazed at his teaching. But what is very, very rare, in fact, you will only see it recorded two times in Scripture, is that Jesus was amazed. God, the Son, God in the flesh, marveled because of their unbelief. There were two times. One time the Bible says in, in Luke chapter 6 that he was amazed at the faith of a centurion. In fact, he said, as he saw him, not even in Israel have I seen this much faith. And he was amazed at that faith in that centurion. And then we see it here on the contrast of that, that he says that he was amazed, not at, the, at great faith, but he was amazed at a lack of faith or unbelief of the people that he grew up with. And as I mentioned a while ago, we know there is great power in faith, right? The Bible speaks of, uh, of the great power that is in faith, but yet there is also a great power in unbelief. For example, Eve exercised unbelief in the Word of God and brought the entire human race down in a curse of judgment because of her unbelief. It was the unbelief of the the, the world that caused it to go under judgment at the flood because of their unbelief. It was unbelief on the part of Israel in the wilderness that caused them to wander around for 40 years and many die there. It was Aaron's unbelief that led to 3,000 people that, that were slaughtered. It was Achan's unbelief that resulted in his disobedience that brought about not only his own execution, but the execution of his entire family. It was the unbelief of Judas who walked with Jesus and was one of the disciples of Jesus that it was his unbelief that led to his own suicide and his everlasting punishment and the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious elite of uh, of Jesus' day, they were unbelievers to the very end, with except for a very few exceptions to that. And like all other unbelievers, their unbelief resulted in them dying in their sins and forfeiting heaven and undergoing the divine wrath and judgment of God. That's what the Bible teaches. 
The New Testament has a lot to say about believing and it has a lot to say about faith, but it also has a whole lot to say about unbelief. And I don't think it's put in a better way than in John chapter 3. Listen carefully to these verses, beginning in verse number 16, which you all know. In fact, say it with me if you know it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We see the word believe, but then it doesn't stop there. Listen to verse 17. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Notice again, He that, what? Believes. He that believeth on Him is not condemned, but he that believes not, or has unbelief, is condemned already because, why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. There is great power in belief. There is great power in unbelief. It was unbelief that brought the curse on all humanity. It was unbelief that drowned it, drowned all of humanity. It is unbelief that activates divine judgment. So yes, there is great power in faithlessness. And that is why to me verse 6 is one of the saddest verses in all the Bible because Jesus marveled at their what? Unbelief. Their lack of faith. I want to just give you three things from the text this morning and then I'm going to do something a little bit different. I want you to take the sermon this morning and next Sunday, I'm going to ask all of our faith group teachers and leaders to take a break from whatever you're teaching and in your classes to dive deeper into this text and discuss this text in more depth in your studies on next Sunday. And now I see a lot of the teachers grabbing pens and paper to write down some things. But I want to give you just three things this morning from the text that I think applies to our life. Number one, Location does not guarantee a relationship with Jesus. Location does not guarantee a relationship with Jesus. These people lived in the same town with Jesus for about 30 years and still did not believe. And what this passage reminds us in verse number 1 is that you can grow up in an area where Jesus is well known and Jesus is talked about a lot and you can live in that place perhaps your entire life and at the end you can reject faith in Jesus Christ. All throughout the New Testament we learn that Jesus grew up in this little town of, of Nazareth. It says Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene. This is where he grew up. What do you think that Nazareth was like? It certainly was not a, a mega city, a metropolis. It was about 60 acres. Some of you live on more acreage than the whole town of Nazareth was. On the side of a hill, out in the middle of nowhere, 60 acres, with about 500 residents. It's so obscure that it's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned in the Jewish Mishnah. It's never mentioned in the Jewish Talmud. It's never mentioned by Josephus, the historian. Jesus and his family were no doubt known in Nazareth. You say, how do you know that? Well, there were only about 500 people in this 60-acre Town. In fact, we know that they knew him because even in our text, it says that they know him 
And they call his family. They knew that he was a carpenter. We, we can understand this living in Jamestown. We're triple the size or quadruple the size of Nazareth in our city limits. But we even know with 2,000 people, it's easy to know a lot of people. In fact, be careful who you talk about in Jamestown. Because you are probably talking to a distant cousin, maybe even a sister. Just a little wisdom for those folks of us who've moved in here in the last few years. About a year before this, Jesus made his first visit back to Nazareth, as I mentioned. And the people in his hometown tried to kill him. Again, next week in your faith groups, I want you to go back and Look through Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30 at that account. We won't take time to do that t- today. But this time, his disciples followed him. Why? Because this isn't a family vacation back home. This is a, a ministry trip. And Jesus is not just going back to, to teach and to do miracles, although he does those things. But the disciples are along because Jesus is going to teach them a very important lesson. Listen, in regards to rejection. And this is very, very important. This is a, a field trip for them that they are taking because as we're going to see next week and in the next section beginning in verse number 7, He is going to send them out in their first little trial run and they are going to experience, guess what? Rejection. And so they are learning from Jesus what to do when they face rejection from the world. By the way, it was Jesus who said in John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, understand that they hated me before they hated you. And listen, we must not and should not be surprised that those that are antagonistic towards God become antagonistic towards us. I'm not going to belabor this point, but the application is to us this morning in Jamestown, Tennessee. How does this apply to us? Because it doesn't matter where you grew up. Being from a country that was founded on biblical principles won't earn you eternal life any more so than growing up in the same town that Jesus grew up in. Being born right in the middle of the the, beck, the buckle of the Bible Belt. Which, by the way, if you've moved to Jamestown, you moved right into the buckle of the Bible Belt. But that will not give you eternal life. That will not give you one day in heaven. It doesn't matter if you grew up like, like I did and others did on the front pew of a church, laying in the laps of our moms, falling asleep underneath a long-winded preacher who may have been my father. It doesn't matter if you grew up right underneath it. A relationship with Jesus Christ is not inherited. It is personal. And these people were very familiar with Jesus. They grew up with Him, but they were faithless and their unbelief would seal their eternal fate unless they at some point turned and repented of their sin. And you may be in a... Proximity. You may have moved to a place or you may have grown up in a place where Jesus is often talked about and most people on Sundays attend a church service somewhere and you can grow up there. And listen, this is what this text reminds us of. You can grow up in that place and you can die in your sins and face the judgment of God unless you come to faith and repentance, personal faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Location does not 
guarantee your relationship with Jesus. You say, well, that's a harsh message. No, it's a message of love. It's a message telling you that Jesus came to this earth and gave his life for you and died on a cross and atoned your sin and rose from the grave victorious over death so that we wouldn't have to face that eternal judgment. So that we could spend eternity with our Creator and with Jesus Christ. Location does not guarantee a relationship with Jesus. But secondly, I want you to notice that knowledge and astonishment does not guarantee a relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 2 again. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man... Mark that little phrase, this man. From whence... Hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Now, these people knew very well the claims of Jesus Christ, that he claimed to be the Messiah. And this little reference to this man, actually this fellow, is a term of disdain and disrespect. These unbelieving Nazarenes have a front row seat to the life of Jesus and all they can do in their knowledge and amazement of his teaching. Wow, I can't believe he's speaking with such wisdom. All they can do is try to trace this back to some kind of man-made wisdom or knowledge that he could have gotten from where? Where did he get this kind of wisdom? They're trying to, to figure this out in their human minds because they've already rejected that he is the Son of God. That's not an option in their mind. And listen, uh, as you study the Word of God, and even now, 2,000 years later, as we look back and we read the Word of God, there is only one sensible answer to where all this came from, and that is that it came from God. It was supernatural. And as we studied long ago, when it's, either, when it's supernatural, it's either of God or it is of Satan. And we see here in Jesus' life that He is who He says He is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has come to fulfill the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And Jesus told them this in John 5.36, But I have a greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. John 8, verse 45, And because I tell you the truth, ye believe not. Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? Why do you not believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you're not of God. John chapter 7, verse 15, And the Jews marveled, saying, How knows this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine. My teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. John 10, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in them. He's trying from every angle to get them to believe that what he is saying and what he is doing is because he is the Messiah. John 14, believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? 
The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. His words and his works witness that he is the Messiah. It was obvious that he had divine power. It was obvious that he was teaching, unlike any other man, divine truth. But listen, I want you not to miss this this morning, that unbelief is dangerous and it is powerful because it always obscures the obvious. It always excuses away the obvious. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 31, Jesus said, If they hear not... Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And by the way, he did rise from the dead. And many still did not believe. Listen, friends, you can have the world's record in Scripture memorization. You can have the world record in how many times you've read the Bible through or how many hours you've spent in prayer But if you have not come to a place of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, you can have all the knowledge. You can be astonished at Jesus. But unless you put your faith in Him, you cannot have eternal life. Jesus is so clear regarding this. Luke chapter 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? And in thy name have we not cast out many devils, and in thy name done many wondrous works. And then I will profess to them, he says, I never knew you. Wait, wait. We were around it all the time. We had great knowledge of the scriptures. We were astonished. We even taught the scriptures. I never knew you. Your faith was in your works. Your faith was in your good deeds. Your faith was in being a a red-blooded conservative American, a, a nation that was founded on biblical principles. Your faith was in something else, your background, but it wasn't in me. Location does not guarantee a relationship, and neither does knowledge and astonishment, and lastly, neither does heritage. Heritage does not guarantee a relationship with Jesus. We learn in verses 4 through 6 that Jesus' own family, wow, the same house. Can you imagine living with a perfect person? Imagine if your brother or sister, some of you are like, no, can't imagine that at all. I see a lot of uh, spouses snickering at each other. Imagine living with a spouse who was perfect. (laughs) If you remember just a few chapters ago, we were studying in Mark chapter 3 that his own family thought he had gone crazy. Remember that? He's a maniac. According to John chapter 7, Jesus' own brothers, even after the influence of his mother, who must have communicated to them who he really was, did not believe. Thankfully, we do know this. After the resurrection, at least, at least some of his siblings did believe. In fact, James, his brother, who is mentioned here, who did not believe, was converted after the resurrection and became a leader in the early church, writing the epistle of James. 
So thankfully, they did come to faith in Jesus, which is, again, great testimony. But it's also a reminder that there's a lot of people who think that they're going to heaven because, maybe not because they were born American, or maybe not because they were born in a conservative place, but because they were born into a Christian family. Because their parents were Christian, because their grandparents were, were Christian. And one thing that we know from Scripture is this, that salvation is a, is a personal choice. Point Put very clearly, God has children, but he has no grandchildren. He only has children. A Christian heritage will not give you eternal life, which, which is basically... Reminding us that everyone has to come to a personal decision to repent and trust Jesus as the Son of God or reject Him. We can't claim the faith of our parents. We can't claim the faith of a spouse. If we don't have our own faith, listen, we don't have faith. If we don't have our own faith, we don't have faith. And listen, the greatest concern as a parent or grandparent ought not to be that your child's name is on the A.B. honor roll at school or on the dean's list at college, but that their names are in the book of life. It ought to be what consumes us. It ought to be what we pray about more than anything. It, It ought to be what we give priority to. And sure, we should all strive to pass a Christian legacy down to our children but what we need to be clear to our children is that they will not have eternal life on our salvation that they have to make a personal choice if we're not careful and if we're not clear and that's why we teach this in this church people can grow up in a home where they become very familiar with jesus but they're personally faithless in Jesus. It really is sad to me. And I hear it all the time. I've heard it in the South where I have lived all my life. People who are very familiar with Jesus, people who are very familiar with the gospel, people who are even astonished. But that does not assure them salvation. In fact, that's what they're trusting in. How many times have you asked somebody about their salvation and they would say something like, I've always been a a Christian. I was grown, I, I was brought up in a Christian home. It's easy to have that mentality, and we're not we're not condemning that thought. But what the Bible teaches us is that that is not enough for you. You have to make a personal choice and a personal decision. If we were to have a a person in in Jamestown who could heal all diseases, who Dr. Clark could say one word and feed the entire community, who could cast out demons, who could do all these wonderful things, is that the kind of person we would want to crucify? But that's, that's what happened with Jesus. Give us Barabbas. We want the thief. Kill Jesus. Do away with Jesus. You see, unbelief, unbelief is so powerful. 
Unbelief is so dangerous. Unbelief chooses to go it alone my way in the kingdom of darkness. Unbelief refuses to acknowledge that there are supernatural things in this life. Unbelief rejects the gifts of this life through the Spirit of God like love and joy and peace and and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. Unbelief rejects divine intervention and supernatural wisdom and supernatural direction. It, It rejects hope. It rejects the promise of heaven. It rejects peace that passes all understanding. It is so powerful. I want you to understand that this morning. That's why the Bible says he was amazed at their unbelief. Nazareth, by and large, turns its back and rejects the one they were so familiar with. And the Bible tells us that Jesus never came back again to that area. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 23. And we're, we're almost done. In fact, Matt, if you'll come and play for us. Matthew 23 says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killed the prophets and stoned them which are sent unto thee. Listen, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings? Listen, what's it say? And ye would not. He invites us but he will not force you. Belief is powerful. Belief gives eternal life. Faith gives eternal life. Many of us are examples that faith in Jesus can change your life radically. If any man be in Christ, if any man puts their faith in Jesus, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How many of you can give testimony? Faith is powerful. Faith is powerful. The Bible says it can move mountains. But unbelief is powerful. It is destructive. It brings judgment. This is a warning this morning to those who may be putting your faith in something else other than Jesus. John 6, 28, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. There's such power and unbelief that it never has enough evidence. It always does bias research. It rejects the facts. It shuts itself off from divine power. It refuses to believe and look at the supernatural around them. And let me close with this verse, John 3.36. He that believes on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. That sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? What we were talking about. Would you say it with me out loud just to, just to hear it? He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God. Let's pray together. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, thank you again for the time of worship in your word. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for 
the opportunity to be able to serve you with one another and worship you. And Lord, we know that your invitation never is closed, really, until your spirit stops dealing with us. And so we pray that even as we are dismissed, that your spirit will continue, Lord, to work in hearts. And if there's anybody who does not know of their eternal destiny, that they will seek someone out before they leave the property today and they will come to faith in you. We pray for our children this morning that are in another service and they're hearing the gospel. Lord, would you take that seed that's being planted this morning in their hearts and Lord, would you work in their hearts throughout this week and this day, bring them to faith in you. And Lord, bring us back this evening again as we worship and study your word together again, fellowship with one another. Help us as we leave here to be your witnesses as we go, be your ambassadors, and to give you glory and praise in all that we say and how we live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.